Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone. Today I will be chatting with Dr. Alex Schrake. Alex is a California-based licensed professional clinical counselor and mom of two who specializes in supporting parents through pregnancy, postpartum, and parenting during the early years. She works with families from an attachment frame and has specialized training in supporting those who have experienced trauma. Dr. Alex Schrake also has a background in teaching and supervision, counselors and training, and consulting with preschools regarding fostering positive socio-emotional development in the classroom. In today's episode, we will talk about attachment theory, the different types of attachment styles, how to support healthy attachment, and much more. Let's dive in. Just a little disclaimer before we start this episode, this podcast does not provide medical advice. The information on this podcast is for informational purposes only. No material on this site is intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. All right, everyone. Today we have Dr. Alex Schrake. I'm super excited to talk with you today. Welcome. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So today we are going to talk about attachment theory and the different types of attachment that each of us might have and kind of how that's affected us in adulthood and how that might affect our children and also what our children's attachment style might be, you know, how you can support healthy attachment and a whole slew of things. So I'm excited (laughs) to talk about this. Why don't we start off with just talking about what is attachment theory? Yeah, that sounds like a great place to start. I likewise am really excited to talk about attachment and attachment theory because I think Like as a millennial parent, like for me, there's so much information out there and which is great and empowering in a lot of ways, but also can be kind of overwhelming. And it feels like there's a lot of pressure on our generation to sort of like parent in a certain way or have personal growth or have our well-being in certain places. And so I find like for myself, attachment especially when we get to kind of like some of the nuances of it, like really can be empowering. It can be sort of encouraging. It can, for me, provide like sort of a roadmap of like what is sort of genuine to being human and being parent and sort of at the core of that. And if you have a little flavor of like perfectionism and anxiety, like there's lots of nice messages about not having to do it perfect and the benefit of making mistakes, which is 
always good stuff. <laughs> but in terms of kind of exactly what it is, it's basically the idea, like it started with John Bowlby in like the 1950s. And he was kind of responding to this idea that like during that time, the kind of dominant narrative that like children just needed kind of the physical pieces to survive and be healthy, like food, water, shelter, like warmth, kind of the basic pieces. And he was coming out of some awareness, both in terms of kind of, I think, observing like primates, but also like maybe more importantly, World War II and orphanages and the awareness that a lot of the children that were in these orphanages were getting those basic needs met physically at least but without like an attachment and a caregiver to support them a lot of them were really struggling and even dying and so he was looking at like kind of thinking about like why does this happen right and the theory is that core to our emotional and physical health is having an early connection with a caregiver that's secure, that we feel protected, that we can go to when we're scared or hurt, and that can provide us enough security that we feel like we can kind of explore in the world and develop you know, all the skills we need to develop for independence. And from there, Mary Ainsworth kind of comes on and she is kind of resonating with what he says, but also I think sort of questioning the idea of as kids, do we really only develop attachment or not have attachment? And so she started looking at like, the different qualities of attachment. And she did an experiment called the strange situation. We can kind of delve into the details of it. It's kind of interesting and fascinating. But the overall piece is that she was looking at mothers in this case and their interactions with their infant toddler, I think like kind of nine to 18 months and seeing how they interacted with each other, both in like a strange setting, but also with a stranger. And from there, identified that there was secure attachment and then insecure attachment. So attachment developed for all kids, but the quality of that attachment was different depending on caregiving kind of responses, particularly in that first year. And from there, she identified that there were within the insecure bubble two different attachment styles that kind of fell under insecure just like anxious attachment and avoidant attachment and then later research would go on to say that there's actually a third called disorganized attachment later research really articulated that these early attachment styles really were connected to emotional and relational health, both as a child, but even all the way into adulthood. 
I think it's so interesting kind of as we have evolved as humans that a lot of what we know psychologically has come from the last, I don't know, maybe 40, 50, 60 years. Before that, it was more fight or flight. We need to survive. And and then when it became, okay, we can actually focus on our own mental health and psychologically what's going on. It was like a lot more research has been done to figure out things like attachment theory and many, many other different topics that kind of cover why we are the way we are. And it's all just so incredibly fascinating to me. So you did touch on these different types of attachment. Can you go into more detail on each one and maybe even like what that might look like? Yeah, absolutely. For secure attachment, so if we're thinking of kind of like the strange situation, like that time in development, right, when we're just like starting to walk, kind of toddling around, creating some general chaos and testing limits and like all that good stuff that happens in toddlerhood. What like kind of ideal secure health would look like, right, is that you feel secure enough that your caregiver is going to stay close enough to you to protect you if something is dangerous. And that you can kind of wander away from them. And, you know, I kind of like, like for my kids, for example, like I have this image of like being at the playground, right? And as you're sort of watching all of the kids, you'll see like toddlers, you know, get like a certain distance back and then something happens like a strange mom or dad shows up on the picture. And so then you kind of see them like check back, look back to their caregiver and kind of read the emotion of like, is this okay? If it feels scary, then they kind of toddle back at different speeds, right? And if they fall down and scrape a knee, right? Like they're sort of looking to that caregiver to come and comfort them and acknowledge their pain and kind of support them and getting back up and continuing to explore. So it's like kind of this dance, right? Of in seeking independence, going out, and then coming back for that security and support and comfort. And the theory is that when we respond sensitively to our child, they develop what's called like a working model of what relationships are and what we can kind of expect for relationships, how we make sense of ourselves in the world, what we expect from the world itself. And so if we have a secure relationship early on and we continue to have kind of largely positive relationships and experiences, then we might go on to like as an adult, see the relationships as something that we can trust and rely on, that we can go to for support when things are hard. And that we also have like a healthy sense of our own identity, right? Like I can be in relationship and not lose who I am. And then on the other end of the spectrum, insecure attachment can look like a couple different things. So if we're kind of falling on the anxious end of the spectrum, then our experience of our caregiver may have been that 
there was kind of some inconsistent responses. So sometimes they were able to show up sensitively and kind of see us and respond to our cues and other times weren't able to do that. And from that, it became kind of scary, right? The exploration, like if you feel like your caregiver might not be there either emotionally or physically when you return from exploration, like you're going to sort of naturally stay close to your caregiver. And so that looks like kind of constantly checking in, a lot of anxiety about independence, fear of rejection, potentially as you get older. And your working model of relationships might be that you really are fearful of rejection, that you might not be able to show up like authentically in adult relationships because you're afraid that if you do, you might scare that person away or push that person away. And so it becomes really obviously like anxiety producing, but also can be really dysregulating, especially when relationships end and you're trying to sort of make sense of that. So kind of giving away some of the independence and autonomy in favor of supporting that sort of close connection. And so avoidant attachment is kind of where you, so if you're thinking about attachment, it's the kind of these two main needs, right? Like the need to be independent and the need to have connection and that in an ideal way we're supporting, we're supported and we're supporting our kids in having kind of a balance of both. Avoidant attachment would show up when we're really falling heavily on the independence end of that spectrum. And that might develop because our caregiver isn't able to connect emotionally. And so we sense that in order to really foster that attachment, which is core to our survival as a kid, we can most support that or please our caregiver by sort of shutting down our own needs or taking care of those needs internally. And so that looks like, and I think can be rewarded like culturally as like a very hyper-independent kiddo might be really successful in a lot of ways, kind of disconnected from emotion. And then our working model is that you don't need relationships maybe, that they're not important for our happiness, or that we have to really be on guard in relationships because if we're connected and we have a sense of intimacy, then that can become very threatening, that it feels like that's taking away from our identity or our independence. And then the last one, insecure, disorganized attachment really looks very chaotic. So the other two forms of insecure attachment are sort of a pattern of behavior, right? But with disorganized attachment, we get really dysregulated and aren't really showing up in consistent ways. And this often happens when our caregiver is both you know, integral to our survival, obviously, and nurturing to us in some ways, but then also is very, can be very frightening at times. And so you have this like really sort of dysregulating and 
fragmented experience of I'm dependent upon this person, but I'm also in danger around this person. And so for little kids, that can look like being frozen or looking very confused, particularly around our caregiver, kind of responding in sort of odd ways that that you wouldn't really expect for a kiddo. And as an adult, our working model becomes relationships are both something we're dependent on, but they're also dangerous. And that can manifest in like this push-pull, right, of like really wanting intimacy and connection in our romantic relationships. But then we experience that being frightened by it and pulling back and trying to be really independent, then feeling discomfort with that and pulling back into the intimacy. So it can be really confusing for both us and and for our partner. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So basically, I'm just going to kind of run down what you just went over. So there's these four attachment styles, one of which is secure attachment. And then there's these three insecure attachment styles. So with secure, you um, are feeling comfortable with your parent, happy, positive, responds well. And then you have under insecure, you have anxious, avoidant, and disorganized. And your disorganized is going to be, oh, I don't know how my parent is going to react to this today. Are they going to nurture me or are they going to do something that might frighten me, like yell and scream about something maybe perhaps the day prior they reacted in a way that was nurturing, right? They might be doing the same thing the next day and it's a totally different response. So there, there's no pattern and there's no way to kind of recognize the parent is just inconsistent. And then you have avoidant where the parent might not be comfortable and they're kind of choosing to let the child be extremely independent and kind of figure out their own way. And it's kind of ignoring, ignoring the child. And then you have anxious where the parent can be perhaps really uncomfortable, again, not consistent and just kind of the, the child might not be connecting as well with the caregiver. Does that sound about right as far as like laying it all out? Yeah, absolutely. I think for like an anxious style, right? Like the need of the child, whatever that is, can be overwhelming. And so that need can be met with a lot of anxiety, which then, you know, creates a message, right? That like our needs are anxiety producing and then we're kind of struggling with I well I need this thing or I want this thing but it also creates anxiety in my caregiver and then that kind of feeds on to sort of this anxious piece. This podcast is brought to you by AG1. AG1 is a daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. I started adding AG1 into my routine about three months ago and have noticed a positive effect. I wanted better gut health and to boost my energy levels. I drink AG1 in the morning with a scoop of protein right after working out in the early morning. It makes me feel ready to take on my day by giving my body the nutrients it craves. Overall, I have felt more mental clarity, increased energy levels, and positive differences in gut health. As a mom, AG1 is a quick and easy way to get science-driven formulation of vitamins, probiotics, and whole food source nutrients on a daily basis. 
as you all know, taking care of you first is the best way to take care of your kids. And AG1 is one of the ways I take care of myself every day. AG1 has a slight tropical flavor and tastes great if you want to add it to your smoothies. For me, I think it's just fine by itself with a scoop of vanilla protein and some ice cold water. AG1 has the NSF certification. This certification was created for professional athletes and is the gold standard for clean ingredient nutrition. The certification process is exhaustive and involves testing and verification of each ingredient and every finished batch of AG1. If you want to check out the full ingredient list, you can head over to their website for more details. For all the moms out there, you know how busy we can be. So if you're looking for self-care that's quick and easy, try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash Lindsay. That's L-Y-N-Z-Y. That's drinkag1.com slash Lindsay. Check it out. So do people typically fall into one type of attachment or is it sometimes that someone might fall into different ones? Like, like for example, could a caregiver at times be more of an anxious attachment style and then switch into avoidant or is it typically that you are just like one particular style? Yeah, that's a great question. So Overall, we have kind of a predominant attachment style, right? And so we're most likely to lean into that attachment style kind of on a given day. But also that's really the way that we show up or how our attachment shows up is dependent on the relationship that we're interacting in and kind of the environment that we're acting in. So we might lean a little bit more anxious at times or a little bit more avoidant at times, depending on the quality of that relationship that we're sort of reacting in. In your research, have you, and this is kind of going back to the beginning a little bit more, but it just popped up in my head. So when is it most prominent that a child is kind of developing their own attachment style? Like, is that within the first year of life or the first couple of years? Like, is there any research to kind of support where the majority of this formation happens? Yeah. So also a great question. Predominantly, we're looking at kind of primary attachments in the first year of life. And I also know that if I was hearing that, that might feel a little stressful, right? Especially if (laughs) it's over for you. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That ship has sailed. Yeah. But I think there's some really hopeful pieces of the research in the sense that, so we might have kind of our primary attachment style developing in that first year. Then as human beings, we are very able to change. And a lot of that depends on kind of our experiences later on. So we have sort of this primary experience, and then that can be shaped either way by later experiences. I think one like particularly hopeful piece about the research is that, and it also doesn't get talked about very often, is that it's there's actually kind of an intervening 
variable between our early experiences and our attachment style. And that variable is how we make sense of our relationship with our parents. And if we've had an opportunity to create like a consistent narrative of our identity and kind of who we are and how that relates to these early experiences. And so I think even if we had an experience early on that maybe leaned into one or more of these insecure attachment pieces, we have an opportunity to kind of explore that piece and make sense of it, make sense of why our parents maybe showed up in that way. And that that can be reparative for us as we move forward. Yeah, that makes sense. So how can we start to know and understand what our child's attachment style might might be? Like how they are responding to us? Like how can we better understand how we are kind of coming across to our own children? Because I think that can be really hard, right? I mean, obviously, everybody listening, myself included, you want to 100% of the time have this secure attachment. But of course, there are certain things, I don't know, maybe you're having a really bad day. And that can be really hard sometimes to show up for your child in the exact way that you would want to. So how can we have, I guess, more insight into how we are coming across to our children as far as the response to what might be going on and how do we understand how our child's attachment style is developing? Does that make sense, that question? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the first piece is to kind of reflect back on maybe sort of like trigger points for us, right? Like in our interactions with our child, what pieces really activate us? And sometimes that can be kind of a good clue to sort of where we're leaning, right? Like if, if kind of going back to the playground example, right? Like when our child explores away from us, is that something that's stirring up emotion for us? Or is it more often that when they're kind of staying close and seeking that comfort, is that a little bit more activating for us. And that can be kind of a good cue if there's sort of a pattern there, right? Like I might be more comfortable with exploration or I might be more comfortable with connection. And then that can be kind of a good baseline to kind of keep in mind, right? Of like when my child is coming to me, what is sort of my immediate reaction to that? And Is that kind of how I want to respond? So saying that is easy to say, right? Like in the moment, like reflecting back. But the reality is that often we're parenting. So we're engaging with our child and we're also like maybe cooking dinner and maybe we have another kiddo that's telling us a story about something they're excited about. And so in practice, it's obviously much messier than kind of in theory, like as you're describing that, I'm thinking to myself, like, I don't know, like you you have like, I'm just trying to think of like a very particular example. So say you're at the playground and then there are different playgrounds for different ages and your child's like, okay, I think it's time for me to start exploring the bigger playground. And your immediate, your immediate reaction might be like, 
oh, no, 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 like you can't go over there. It's too dangerous for you. That's not for your age group. Or maybe it is, and I'm not ready for you to go over there yet. Would that be more of an example of like an anxious attachment in the way I'm responding is, no, you can't do that. And kind of almost making it feel scary to your child. Like, would that be kind of like what you're talking about as far as like a response? Yeah. Well, it would certainly be dependent on like the development, right? So we might have sort of a knee jerk reaction and we might be a little bit more on the anxious end of the spectrum if that's happening sort of across the board. You know, if our child is not developmentally ready for kind of the bigger playground, right? Then that is an appropriate kind of response to that. So it's more looking at sort of a long-term pattern of that piece where we're sort of inhibiting our child from having those opportunities to explore. So that might look like our child really having a lot of anxiety and difficulty leaving kind of our side, sort of beyond like what you would expect for them developmentally. And also like after we've given our child some time to kind of warm up and get used to the environment. But if it's like a familiar environment with kind of familiar people and kids, and they're really struggling to go out to explore, that might be something that we're kind of curious about, you know, what is going on there. And that doesn't immediately mean that it is, you know, reflective of certain attachment style, but it might be something that we're kind of curious about and thinking more about. Can you, I know you gave us some like brief working models for each particular attachment style. Obviously, I'm just talking about like more the insecure attachment style. Can you tell us what it might look like for each of those three anxious, avoidant, and disorganized attachment styles? How the attachment style that was predominantly used within the household as a child, how that might show up for that person once they reach adulthood. So like, for example, if I am somebody who grew up in a household that had more of an anxious attachment style within my home, how might I present to the world and to my own children if that's how I grew up? Does that make sense? Yeah. So if we look at anxious attachment style, right? Like, That might show up for us as like really wanting to keep our children close and we might struggle with more anxiety as well as really struggling with those experiences, whether it be with our caregiver or sorry, with our children or with our partner when we feel a sense of rejection. So we might like respond by like really trying to seek reassurance, whether that be from from our partner or from our children. When we're more on sort of the avoidant end of the spectrum, then that might look like feeling really disconnected from our emotional experience, really maybe not even kind of aware of what we're feeling maybe even sort of less interested in what is happening for us internally and really kind of focused on kind of the physical aspects of our 
relationships or sometimes that can look like manifesting as like a real interest in our children demonstrating being successful in some way. And in our romantic relationships, that can show up as, you know, being a bit disconnected emotionally. So sometimes on the other end, our partner might feel like they're trying to kind of connect with us, but it's almost like sort of catching smoke. Like there's nothing kind of there emotionally to really link on to. And then if we're experiencing some disorganized attachment, we might kind of oscillate right between really trying to connect and then feeling fearful of that connection and pulling back. And so that might look like, you know, trying to be like really present with our kids, but then feeling really dysregulated and pulling back from that. Or it might look like feeling comfortable in relationships romantically where we might be a bit fearful of our partner or but also like really connected emotionally to them what can we as parents because i it is so as you're kind of learning about these attachment styles i feel like it can be it can be hard to navigate certain situations because you want to have an appropriate amount of response for whatever that situation might require so, for example, something where the child is really trying to explore and see what their limitations might be, I think that can be one that a lot of parents can relate to because you obviously you want your child to be independent and explore as much as they feel that they are able to do that, right? Because you want to support that. But at the same time, recognizing when something is a dangerous situation and needs to be stopped, right? So I feel like it's almost this this bounce back between this anxious attachment and this kind of, I guess, in the avoidant where it's like, okay, do I need to respond to this in a way where I'm like, yo, you can't do that. It's dangerous. Or stepping back and onto the back burner and saying, okay, I'm going to let you explore because you're in your own body and you know what you might be capable of. So I should just step back and kind of let you explore and do these things. I think for me, that's kind of like how I look at it where it can be difficult sometimes to figure out what the appropriate reaction should be. So all that to say, how can a parent, what can a parent do to help support a healthy attachment? Yeah. I mean, I think I really resonate with that as a parent too, right? Like you can kind of take like these categories and then it's really complicated like in practice and sort of those concrete moments with our children when we're sort of navigating like how much do I intervene here? How much do I give them autonomy? It gets really complicated, And I think as you're hearing it, it can be stressful trying to navigate like, okay, well, as a parent, I obviously want what's best for my kids and I want to show up in in a secure way for them. But practically, kind of what does that look like? And I think one helpful piece of the research is that I think like when I'm imagining it, right, like I'm imagining showing up like almost perfectly, right? And then in practice, when 
I'm in the midst of trying to navigate like the sort of on the ground experience of it, then it becomes a little bit frightening. Like, Oh, am I doing the right thing? Or like, do I need to correct here or those pieces? And so one piece that I think is helpful is that when they've done their research, it's really not about showing up in a perfect way with our kids. Like most kids fall under the secure attachment umbrella. And within that, when they're looking at interactions between caregivers and kids, on average within secure attachment, we're really looking at, at sort of quote unquote, like getting it right or responding in like a sensitive way only about like 30% of the time. So there's lots of room for like the messy and the imperfect. And in terms of supporting that security, right? Like the kind of key piece of that is repair. So yeah, we're expecting to get it wrong, right? It's like really a dance. Like sometimes we're in step and we you know, or like, okay, our child is capable of this and I can support that exploration. We sort of get it right in that moment. And then there's going to be times where we sort of push them too far. And that's maybe a little scary for them or we hold them back because it's scary for us. And what's most important is that we're trying to sort of catch those moments and return, acknowledge like, hey, I think, you know, sort of name it for them, right? Like, I saw that you were wanting to go on to the playground and, you know, I was a little bit worried about, you know, you going over there on the monkey bars and I wonder what you felt in that experience and kind of sort of returning back, making the repair, labeling for us like what came up and um, supporting our child and sort of feeling confident to explore or confident that if things get scary or they get hurt, they can come back and we can be open to what's happening for them emotionally and respond in a a soothing way 30% of the time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, I think it's with any topic that I talk about on here, I always try to, because if you're listening and you're like, oh, shoot, like, first of all, I missed the first year window. (laughs) Second of all, I struggle with this all the time. And I feel like I'm trying to put my, you know, you're trying to put yourself into a category and then you're like, oh, sometimes I respond in this way. Sometimes I respond in this way, but it's, it can be very comforting to, to hear 30% of the time you know, this is going to happen. And like you said, repair is one of the most important things, right? That we can do. And nothing's perfect. We can't show up perfect all the time. That would be crazy to think about. And the best thing our kids can see is us kind of messing up and then saying, hey, I messed up, right? That is, that's like, it gives them power to say, okay, well, that can happen to me too. Like if I messed up on this one thing, like I can repair it. I've seen my parent do that. And I think that that's so powerful and, and even, you know, more important than getting it perfect all the time. Right. Because they're going to live life in this imperfect way, just like we all do. And so it's good for them to see those things. I think one of the, so 
kind of goes back to the Mary Ainsworth, that study, because I think about this all the time and you'll hear different thought processes from so many different people as far as how to react when your your child is first getting out into the world by themselves. Now, this might happen at different ages for different kids. Some people have two working parents every single day and have to go to daycare early, early on at four months old, right? And then you have some kids that might go off to daycare at age one or two or three or four or five. And so that will obviously look different depending on the the child's personality and attachment style, even if they're going to school later on. How do we help support that transition of our child going into daycare or school dependent on the age? I know this can be, this, this is probably one of the most stressful times of a parent's life, especially when it's like your first child or maybe your second child, because it's new to you. And depending on how it goes can be really stressful because you don't know what to do. Like, should I, most parents will kind of go in and, and kind of make their kid feel comfortable, right? But what do you do on day two, day three, day four, day 20, if your child is still kind of like running back out to you or just doesn't want to disconnect from you on a daily basis? It can be so hard and so many parents uh, walk away crying and just can't get back to their daily activity like work or what have you because they're thinking about how they left their child at school or daycare and anyway so all of that to say how do we help support that transition and kind of like how should it look yeah as you're talking, I like can feel, I can feel like the activation in my body, right? Like just remembering that experience with my little ones and, you know, like the part of me that was like, oh, like I'm so excited for you to have an opportunity to get with your peers and like learn about yourself. And the part of me that was like, oh, but I don't know if I'm ready for you to go out into the world and have this experience outside of me. And, you know, what if something scary or hard happens? Like, oh, you know, I, I remember like vividly getting back to my car and just like (laughs) sobbing. Right. And I think like that is often the most helpful place to start. So, you know, if you're, child hasn't quite made the transition yet, I think it can be helpful to sit down with another sort of trusted person in your life and talk about like, what do I think might come up for me around this transition? Do I have kind of pain points for my childhood around like the experience of school or the experience of separating from my parent? What are kind of the emotions that are coming up as I think about that separation? Or maybe that looks more like kind of journaling that. And so that way we go into it kind of aware of like what our emotion map might look like on that day. Or if it's already sort of in transition, what is actively sort of coming up for us. That way we get to deal with the emotions around that transition with hopefully a little less surprise (laughs) when they pop up. And then, you know, part of that, right, is recognizing that 
attachment maybe gets activated during times of separation, which is healthy and normal. And that that activation goes two ways, right? So like our child might be activated in that separation, but we also are not going to show up as a blank slate. Like our own attachment, our own experiences are going to show up there too. And so we're thinking about like, how do I create a secure base in myself, kind of aware of what emotions and experiences pop up? And from that knowledge, how do I create a sense of security that I will most importantly sort of return at the end of the day or or return when I can, right? And reconnect And how do we support our child in feeling that sense of connection with physical distance, right? And so one way of doing that is to sort of target some of the unknown around it or the worries that are coming up for our kids. And one way of working through those pieces is sort of the more knowledge we have the more sort of empowered and confident we can be potentially as a kid who is sort of navigating that unknown piece. And we can look at sort of concrete ways of providing that, whether it be like through reading books together and sort of imagining being the character and navigating those emotions, like also in a similar way, like targeting the surprise before it happens, whether it be like before the transition or whether it be before kind of the next day, if we're on day 20, right? It can also look like sort of depending on where our our kids are at developmentally, if they're in that sort of imaginative play piece, that's an opportunity, right? Like kids express a lot of what is happening for them emotionally through their play. So trying to find maybe five or 10 minutes in our kind of busy day to sit down and engage in that imaginative play to see what emotions come up, what themes come up. We also have an opportunity to sort of like introduce some of the themes that might be helpful. So we can have like a little alligator that comes in and he's going to the swamp (laughs) for the first day or he's going back to the swamp and he's excited about playing with other alligators, but he's also nervous about leaving, you know, his caregiver out alligator and allow our child both to kind of direct that play or be the alligator And giving them sort of like that bodily experience of practicing going through some of the emotions that might come up and kind of the physical pieces around, around separation. I also really like the book, The Invisible Stream. I like that one because like part of what can be helpful is lending a sense that we're still connected with our child emotionally with the physical separation. So the invisible string book is basically sort of about our love continuing on with our child kind of wherever they're at. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> well, 
That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. And so that's something that I might kind of read with my child's. I might also think about like physical ways of fostering that connection, whether that be, and this would be dependent on kind of the school and what is allowed, but you know, sometimes like a picture of yourself or if you've read the invisible string, like sending a little string or artwork that resonates a lovey or, you know, a piece that you're willing to sort of take the risk of sending the lovey to school, which is like a whole other conversation, <laughs> right? Make it back. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. And then like really reemphasizing the return, right? Like mm-hmm. at the end of the day, I'll pick you up and this is what it'll look like. And maybe we have a routine about saying goodbye with some kind of physical touch at the beginning and at the end of the day upon the return. So it's, It's funny too, because this doesn't just happen when you first, like you might bring your child for the first day and they might say, bye mom, see you later. (laughs) Other kids won't do that. And every child will react in their own personal way, but that Mm -hmm. might also change as time goes on. So like with, with our youngest, she first day of school marched right in there. I was like, my jaw probably hit the floor because <laughs> she is my most attached. Like she always wants to be on my hip, on me, mm-hmm. with me. And so when we got there and she's with her brother, so I think that did help, but mm-hmm. I still didn't expect it. So I was like, oh, you're just going to leave me like that. So that's, of course, <laughs> yeah. my, my reaction. And it doesn't mean that it will always be that way. There were many days and many weeks where she wouldn't leave and she'd be very upset to leave. And so I do, I love all the examples you gave of just kind of reemphasizing to them whenever it does seem to be a struggle that we are connected and having this routine of, I will always be here. I'm here even when I'm not here. And then when you're reconnected, having that routine is so helpful for them because this will kind of come up time and time again. It's not just that one time. It's It just depends on what they might be going through emotionally or physically. And sometimes they're going to feel like they can't leave that connection. I even have my older one who's like, I don't know if I want to go to school today. It, it still shows up. And so I, I love those examples that you that you gave. I did want to end with just with this broad question of if somebody was listening today and they're thinking to themselves, gosh, I really think that the majority of the time I'm in one of these insecure attachment styles of parenting, what can they do? Yeah, I'm glad that you're asking that question. I think there's lots of good resources that you could kind of start with. Like Dan Siegel has a lot of really wonderful books that kind of touch on attachment and some concrete ways of kind of supporting that. Also, like the Circle of Security is a great resource with some kind of both therapeutic and kind of parent-oriented books with also some kind of concrete tools for looking at assessing kind of our own attachment style as well as um, supporting that piece. 
But then I also, you know, I'm just obviously maybe a little bit biased, right, as a therapist, but I'm such a big proponent of accessing therapy and having an opportunity to like really process what's coming up for us and kind of make sense of that, learn about ourselves, learn about how we want to show up and kind of just have a safe place to experiment with those pieces. Absolutely. And I feel like it's a place where you're able to, and for some people, this might be the first time, but kind of analyze things that might have happened to you or during your life or your childhood and how that has shaped how you're reacting now. And it's very hard to do that by yourself. You might not be asking yourself the right questions or even thinking that any of it has to do with how you're reacting now, right? Like you might not even realize either an event that might have happened or how you grew up might have any effect on any of those things. But it's it's so interesting because once you kind of work through that, it all kind of makes a little bit more sense, right? But yeah, and I think therapy is so helpful for that because it it helps you to understand and think about things that you might not have ever thought about and connects dots where you might not have thought that they were connected. Okay. So is there anything that we didn't touch on within this subject that you wanted to talk about? I think we touched on kind of all the important areas, at least kind of the little Just foundation. The broad, yeah. yeah. And I will link to some of those resources that you had mentioned. If, if people want to learn a little bit more, or dig a little bit deeper, that would be a great place to start. So now for two questions that I always ask everybody I have on. So the first question is, if you could give one piece of advice to moms, what would that be? I think when I was pregnant, I was like really preparing for birth, right? And I would have loved to have kind of more discussion around that. Not only are you sort of giving birth to your child, but you're also giving birth to kind of like a new new identity Mm -hmm. and that there's going to be such a mix of emotional experience, both wonderful joy and complicated emotions to navigate through and that it is okay to ask for help and it is okay to struggle and not know and have the messiness show up too. Yes, totally agree. Okay, Alex. So the last question is, if you could make one meal for your whole family that everyone would eat, that is, <laughs> hold on, it gets more complicated. That, that's <laughs> relatively quick and easy. What would it be? Oh my goodness. That is, that is a good question. I mean, if anyone has some good suggestions, I would absolutely take them up on that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and don't feel like this could literally be going out to a fast food or something. So don't put that off the table. Okay. That's always good to hear. (laughs) Uh, I'd say that we're having kind of right now in my house the uh, most success with (laughs) Trader Joe's pizza dough. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's fun to roll out too with our kids. So I think that has some buy-in, hopefully on good days. (laughs) Um, And we just make it simple. We get like the Trader Joe's pizza dough and the sauce and they usually have the cheese right laid out and Sometimes I'll add some other veggies in too. And and usually that doesn't go that well, but. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, you can always try, you know, you might Uh be pleasantly surprised one day. (laughs) Yes, right. 
It's about introducing and reintroducing, so I hear. <laughs> yeah, that's a great idea. I, I always find a lot of luck in just allowing the kids to kind of build their own meal whenever mm-hmm. anything is already all put together. I have a few kids who just won't even touch it. So, <laughs> And in yes. that case, I just put raw veggies all on the table. And if they're hungry, they eat them. And most of the time they do. So, you know. It'll happen. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much, Alex, for taking time out of your day to talk about this. This was really great. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. All resources mentioned in this episode can be found in the show notes on lindsayandco.com. To continue these important conversations, head over to Motherhood Meets Medicine on Instagram. Let me know what you learned from this episode and who you would love to hear from next. I always love getting feedback from you. If you're finding value in this podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, and share with a friend. This will help us to reach even more women from around the world. I'll catch you next week. Until then, don't forget to find some time to unplug, unwind, and have a little fun. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.